0: Section One of the Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, The Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, The Warren Commission Report, by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy chapter one summary and conclusions part one the assassination of john fitzgerald kennedy on november twenty second nineteen sixty three was a cruel and shocking act of violence directed against a man a family a nation and against all mankind a young and vigorous leader whose years of public and private life stretched before him was the victim of the fourth presidential assassination in the history of a country dedicated to the concepts of reasoned argument and peaceful political change this commission was created on november twenty ninth nineteen sixty three in recognition of the right of people everywhere to a full and truthful knowledge concerning these events this report endeavors to fulfill that right and to appraise this tragedy by the light of reason and the standard of fairness it has been prepared with a deep awareness of the commission's responsibility to present to the american people an objective report of the facts relating to the assassination narrative of events at eleven forty a m central standard time on friday november twenty second nineteen sixty three president john f kennedy mrs kennedy and their party arrived at love field dallas texas behind them was the first day of a texas trip planned five months before by the president vice-president lyndon b johnson and john b connolly jr governor of texas after leaving the white house on thursday morning the president had flown initially to san antonio where Vice-President Lyndon B. Johnson joined the party, and the President dedicated new research facilities at the U.S. Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine. Following a testimonial dinner in Houston for U.S. Representative Albert Thomas, the President flew to Fort Worth, where he spent the night and spoke at a large breakfast gathering on Friday. Planned for later that day were a motorcade through downtown Dallas, a luncheon speech at the Trade Mart, and a flight to Austin, where the President would attend a reception and speak at a Democratic fundraising dinner. From Austin he would proceed to the Texas ranch of the Vice President. Evident on this trip were the varied roles which an American President performs—head of state, chief executive, party leader, and in this instance, prospective candidate for re-election. The Dallas motorcade, it was hoped, would evoke a demonstration of the President's personal popularity in a city which he had lost in the 1960 election. Once it had been decided that the Texas trip would span two days, those responsible for planning, primarily Governor Connolly and Kenneth O'Donnell, a special assistant to the President, agreed that a motorcade through Dallas would be desirable. The Secret Service was told on November eighth that forty five minutes had been allotted to the motorcade procession from Love Field to the site of a luncheon planned by Dallas business and civic leaders in honor of the President. After considering the facilities and security problems of several buildings, the trade mart was chosen as the luncheon site. Given this selection, and in accordance with the customary practice of affording the greatest number of people an opportunity to see the President, the motorcade route selected was a natural one. The route was approved by the local host committee and White House representatives on November eighteenth and publicized in the local papers starting on November nineteenth. This advance publicity made it clear that the motorcade would leave Main Street and pass the intersection of Elm and Houston Streets as it proceeded to the trade mart by way of the Stemmons Freeway. By mid-morning of November twenty-second, clearing skies in Dallas dispelled the threat of rain, and the president greeted the crowds from his open limousine without the bubble top which was at that time a plastic shield furnishing protection only against inclement weather. To the left of the President in the rear seat was Mrs. Kennedy. In the jump seats were Governor Connolly, who was in front of the President, and Mrs. Connolly at the Governor's left. Agent William R. Greer of the Secret Service was driving, and Agent Roy H. Kellerman was sitting to his right directly behind the presidential limousine was an open follow-up car with eight secret service agents two in the front seat two in the rear and two on each running board these agents in accordance with normal secret service procedures were instructed to scan the crowds the roofs and windows of buildings overpasses and crossings for signs of trouble behind the follow-up car was the vice presidential car carrying the vice-president and mrs johnson and senator ralph w yarborough next were a vice-presidential follow-up car and several cars and busses for additional dignitaries press representatives and others the motorcade left love field shortly after eleven fifty a m and proceeded through residential neighborhoods stopping twice at the president's request to greet well-wishers among the friendly crowds each time the President's car halted, Secret Service agents from the follow-up car moved forward to assume a protective stance near the President and Mrs. Kennedy. As the motorcade reached Main Street, a principal east-west artery in downtown Dallas, the welcome became tumultuous. At the extreme west end of Main Street, the motorcade turned right on Houston Street, and proceeded north for one block in order to make a left turn on elm street the most direct and convenient approach to the stemmons freeway and the trade-mart as the president's car approached the intersection of houston and elm streets there loomed directly ahead on the intersection's northwest corner a seven-story orange brick warehouse and office building the texas school book depository Riding in the Vice-President's car, Agent Rufus W. Youngblood of the Secret Service noticed that the clock atop the building indicated 12.30 p.m., the scheduled arrival time at the trade mart. The President's car, which had been going north, made a sharp turn toward the southwest, onto Elm Street. At a speed of about 11 miles per hour, it started down the gradual descent toward a railroad overpass, under which the motorcade would proceed before reaching the Stemmons freeway. The front of the Texas School Book Depository was now on the President's right, and he waved to the crowd assembled there as he passed the building. Dealey Plaza, an open landscaped area marking the western end of downtown Dallas, stretched out to the President's left. A Secret Service agent riding in the motorcade radioed the trademark that the President would arrive in five minutes. Seconds later, shots resounded in rapid succession. The President's hands moved to his neck. He appeared to stiffen momentarily, and lurch slightly forward in his seat. A bullet had entered the base of the back of his neck, slightly to the right of the spine. It traveled downward and exited from the front of the neck, causing a nick in the left lower portion of the knot in the President's necktie. Before the shooting started, Governor Connolly had been facing toward the crowd on the right. He started to turn toward the left, and suddenly felt a blow on his back. The Governor had been hit by a bullet which entered at the extreme right side of his back, at a point below his right armpit. The bullet travelled through his chest in a downward and forward direction, exited below his right nipple, passed through his right wrist which had been in his lap, and then caused a wound to his left thigh. The force of the bullet's impact appeared to spin the governor to his right, and Mrs. Connolly pulled him down into her lap. Another bullet then struck President Kennedy, in the rear portion of his head, causing a massive and fatal wound. The President fell to the left into Mrs. Kennedy's lap. Secret Service agent Clinton J. Hill, riding on the left running-board of the follow-up car, heard a noise which sounded like a firecracker, and saw the President suddenly lean forward and to the left. Hill jumped off the car and raced towards the President's limousine, in the front seat of the Vice-Presidential car, Agent Youngblood heard an explosion, and noticed unusual movements in the crowd. He vaulted into the rear seat, and sat on the Vice-President in order to protect him. At the same time, Agent Kellerman, in the front seat of the Presidential limousine, turned to observe the President. Seeing that the President was struck, Kellerman instructed the driver, "'Let's get out of here. We're hit.' He radioed ahead to the lead car, Get us to the hospital, immediately. Agent Greer immediately accelerated the presidential car. As it gained speed, Agent Hill managed to pull himself onto the back of the car where Mrs. Kennedy had climbed. Hill pushed her back into the rear seat and shielded the stricken President and Mrs. Kennedy as the President's car proceeded at high speed to Parkland Memorial Hospital, four miles away. At Parkland, the President was immediately treated by a team of physicians who had been alerted for the President's arrival by the Dallas Police Department, as a result of a radio message from the motorcade after the shooting. The doctors noted irregular breathing movements and a possible heartbeat, although they could not detect a pulse beat. They observed the extensive wound in the President's head, and a small wound approximately one-fourth inch in diameter in the lower third of his neck. In an effort to facilitate breathing, the physicians performed a tracheotomy by enlarging the throat wound and inserting a tube. Totally absorbed in the immediate task of trying to preserve the President's life, the attending doctors never turned the President over for an examination of his back. At 1 p.m., after all heart activity had ceased, and the last rites were administered by a priest, President Kennedy was pronounced dead governor connolly underwent surgery and ultimately recovered from his serious wounds upon learning of the president's death vice-president johnson left parkland hospital under close guard and proceeded to the presidential plane at love field mrs kennedy accompanying her husband's body boarded the plane shortly thereafter at two thirty eight p m in the central compartment of the plane Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as the 36th President of the United States by Federal District Court Judge Sarah T. Hughes. The plane immediately left for Washington, D.C., arriving at Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland, at 5.58 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The President's body was taken to the National Naval Medical Center, Bethesda, Maryland, where it was given a complete pathological examination the autopsy disclosed the large head wound observed at parkland and the wound in the front of the neck which had been enlarged by the parkland doctors when they performed the tracheotomy both of these wounds were described in the autopsy report as being presumably of exit in addition the autopsy revealed a small wound of entry in the rear of the president's skull and another wound of entry near the base of the back of the neck the autopsy report stated the cause of death as gunshot wound head and the bullets which struck the president were described as having been fired from a point behind and somewhat above the level of the deceased at the scene of the shooting there was evident confusion at the outset concerning the point of origin of the shots witnesses differed in their accounts of the direction from which the sound of the shots had emanated Within a few minutes, however, attention centered on the Texas School Book Depository building as the source of the shots. The building was occupied by a private corporation, the Texas School Book Depository Company, which distributed school textbooks for several publishers and leased space to representatives of the publishers. Most of the employees in the building worked for these publishers the balance including a fifteen-man warehouse crew were employees of the texas school book depository company itself several eyewitnesses in front of the building reported that they saw a rifle being fired from the southeast corner window on the sixth floor of the texas school book depository one eyewitness howard l brennan had been watching the parade from a point on elm street directly opposite and facing the building he promptly told a policeman that he had seen a slender man about five feet ten inches in his early thirties take deliberate aim from the sixth-floor corner window and fire a rifle in the direction of the president's car brennan thought he might be able to identify the man since he had noticed him in the window a few minutes before the motorcade made the turn onto elm street at 12.34 p.m., the Dallas police radio mentioned the depository building as a possible source of the shots, and at 12.45 p.m. the police radio broadcast a description of the suspected assassin, based primarily on Brennan's observations. When the shots were fired, a Dallas motorcycle patrolman, Marion L. Baker, was riding in the motorcade at a point several cars behind the President, he had turned right from Main Street on to Houston Street, and was about two hundred feet south of Elm Street when he heard a shot. Baker, having recently returned from a week of deer hunting, was certain the shot came from a high powered rifle. He looked up and saw pigeons scattering in the air from their perches on the School Book Depository building. He raced his motorcycle to the building, dismounted scanned the area to the west and pushed his way through the spectators toward the entrance there he encountered roy truly the building superintendent who offered baker his help they entered the building and ran toward the two elevators in the rear finding that both elevators were on an upper floor they dashed up the stairs not more than two minutes had elapsed since the shooting when they reached the second floor landing on their way up to the top of the building Patrolman Baker thought he caught a glimpse of someone through the small glass window in the door separating the hall area near the stairs from the small vestibule leading into the lunch-room. Gun in hand, he rushed to the door, and saw a man about twenty feet away, walking toward the other end of the lunch-room. The man was empty-handed. At Baker's command, the man turned and approached him. Truly, who had started up the stairs to the third floor, ahead of Baker, returned to see what had delayed the patrolman baker asked truly whether he knew the man in the lunchroom truly replied that the man worked in the building whereupon baker turned from the man and proceeded with truly up the stairs the man they encountered had started working in the texas School Book depository building on october sixteenth nineteen sixty three his fellow workers described him as very quiet a loner his name was lee harvey oswald within about one minute after his encounter with baker and truly oswald was seen passing through the second floor offices in his hand was a full coke bottle which he had purchased from a vending machine in the lunchroom he was walking toward the front of the building where a passenger elevator and a short flight of stairs provided access to the main entrance of the building on the first floor approximately seven minutes later at about twelve forty p m oswald boarded a bus at a point on elm street seven short blocks east of the depository building the bus was traveling west toward the very building from which oswald had come its route lay through the oak cliff section in southwest dallas where it would pass seven blocks east of the rooming house in which oswald was living at ten twenty six north beckley avenue on the bus was mrs mary bledsoe one of oswald's former landladies who immediately recognized him oswald stayed on the bus approximately 3 or 4 minutes during which time it proceeded only 2 blocks because of the traffic jam created by the motorcade in the assassination oswald then left the bus a few minutes later he entered a vacant taxi 4 blocks away and asked the driver to take him to a point on North Beckley Avenue, several blocks beyond his rooming-house. This trip required five or six minutes. At about 1 p.m. Oswald arrived at the rooming-house. The housekeeper, Mrs. Erline Roberts, was surprised to see Oswald at midday, and remarked to him that he seemed to be in quite a hurry. He made no reply. A few minutes later, Oswald emerged from his room, zipping up his jacket, and rushed out of the house. Approximately fourteen minutes later, just forty-five minutes after the assassination, another violent shooting occurred in Dallas. The victim was Patrolman J.D. Tippett of the Dallas Police, an officer with a good record during his more than eleven years with the police force. He was shot near the intersection of 10th Street and Patton Avenue, about nine-tenths of a mile from Oswald's rooming house. At the time of the assassination, Tippett was alone in his patrol car, the routine practice for most police patrol officers at this time of day. He had been ordered by radio at 12.45 p.m., to proceed to the central Oak Cliff area, as part of a concentration of patrol car activity around the center of the city, following the assassination. At 1254, Tippett radioed that he had moved, as directed, and would be available for any emergency. By this time, the police radio had broadcast several messages, alerting the police to the suspect described by Brennan at the scene of the assassination slender white male about thirty years old five feet ten inches and weighing about a hundred and sixty five pounds at approximately one fifteen p m tippett was driving slowly in an easterly direction on east tenth street in oak cliff about one hundred feet past the intersection of tenth street and patton avenue tippett pulled up alongside a man walking in the same direction the man met the general description of the suspect wanted in connection with the assassination. He walked over to Tippett's car, rested his arms on the door on the right-hand side of the car, and apparently exchanged words with Tippett through the window. Tippett opened the door on the left side and started to walk around the front of the car. As he reached the front wheel on the driver's side, the man on the sidewalk drew a revolver and fired several shots in rapid succession, hitting Tippett four times and killing him instantly. An automobile repairman, Domingo Benavidez, heard the shots and stopped his pickup truck on the opposite side of the street, about twenty-five feet in front of Tippett's car. He observed the gunman start back toward Patton Avenue, removing the empty cartridge cases from the gun as he went. Benavidez rushed to Tippett's side. The patrolman, apparently dead, was lying on his revolver, which was out of its holster. Benavides promptly reported the shooting to police headquarters over the radio in Tippett's car. The message was received shortly after one sixteen p.m. As the gunman left the scene, he hurriedly walked back toward Patton Avenue and turned left, heading south. Standing on the northwest corner of Tenth Street and Patton Avenue, was Helen Markham, who had been walking south on Patton Avenue, and had seen both the killer and Tippett cross the intersection in front of her as she waited on the curb for the traffic to pass. She witnessed the shooting, and then saw the man with a gun in his hand walk back toward the corner and cut across the lawn of the corner house as he started south on Patton Avenue. In the corner house itself, mrs barbara Jeannette davis and her sister-in-law mrs virginia davis heard the shots they rushed to the door in time to see the man walk rapidly across the lawn shaking a revolver as if he were emptying it of cartridge-cases later that day each woman found a cartridge-case near the home as the gunman turned the corner he passed alongside a taxicab which was parked on patton avenue a few feet from tenth street the driver, William W. Scoggins, had seen the sleighing, and was now crouched behind his cab on the street side. As the gunman cut through the shrubbery on the lawn, Scoggins looked up and saw the man approximately twelve feet away. In his hand was a pistol, and he muttered words which sounded to Scoggins like, Poor dumb cop, or poor damn cop. After passing Scoggins, the gunman crossed to the west side of Patton Avenue and ran south toward Jefferson Boulevard, a main Oak Cliff thoroughfare. On the east side of Patton, between 10th Street and Jefferson Boulevard, Ted Calloway, a used car salesman, had heard the shots and ran to the sidewalk. As the man with the gun rushed past, Calloway shouted, What's going on? the man merely shrugged ran on to jefferson boulevard and turned right on the next corner was a gas station with a parking lot in the rear the assailant ran into the lot discarded his jacket and then continued his flight west on jefferson in a shoe store a few blocks further west on jefferson the manager, Johnny Calvin Brewer, heard the siren of a police car moments after the radio in his store had announced the shooting of the police officer in Oak Cliff. Brewer saw a man step quickly into the entrance way of the store and stand there with his back toward the street. When the police car made a U-turn and headed back in the direction of the Tippett shooting, the man left, and Brewer followed him he saw the man enter the texas theatre a motion-picture house about sixty feet away without buying a ticket brewer pointed this out to the cashier mrs julia postal who called the police the time was shortly after one forty p m at one twenty nine p m the police radio had noted the similarity in the descriptions of the suspects in the tippet shooting and the assassination at 1.45 p.m., in response to Mrs. Postal's call, the police radio sounded the alarm. Have information a suspect just went into the Texas theater on West Jefferson. Within minutes, the theater was surrounded. The house lights were then turned up. Patrolman M. N. MacDonald and several other policemen approached the man who had been pointed out to them by Brewer. MacDonald ordered the man to his feet and heard him say, "'Well, it's all over now.' The man drew a gun from his waist with one hand, and struck the officer with the other. MacDonald struck out with his right hand, and grabbed the gun with his left hand. After a brief struggle, MacDonald and several other police officers disarmed and handcuffed the suspect, and drove him to police headquarters, arriving at approximately 2 p.m. Following the assassination, police cars had rushed to the Texas School Book Depository in response to the many radio messages reporting that the shots had been fired from the Depository building. Inspector J. Herbert Sawyer, of the Dallas Police Department, arrived at the scene shortly after hearing the first of these police radio messages, at 1234 p.m. Some of the officers who had been assigned to the area of Elm and Houston Streets for the motorcade were talking to witnesses and watching the building when Sawyer arrived. Sawyer entered the building and rode a passenger elevator to the fourth floor, which was the top floor for this elevator. He conducted a quick search, returned to the main floor, and, between approximately 1237 and 1240 p.m., ordered that no one be permitted to leave the building. Shortly before 1 p.m., Captain J. Will Fritz, chief of the homicide and robbery bureau of the dallas police department arrived to take charge of the investigation searching the sixth floor deputy sheriff luke mooney noticed a pile of cartons in the southeast corner he squeezed through the boxes and realized immediately that he had discovered the point from which the shots had been fired on the floor were three empty cartridge cases a carton had apparently been placed on the floor at the side of the window so that a person sitting on the carton could look down elm street toward the overpass and scarcely be noticed from the outside between this carton and the half-open window were three additional cartons arranged at such an angle that a rifle resting on the top carton would be aimed directly at the motorcade as it moved away from the building the high stack of boxes which had first attracted mooney's attention effectively screened a person at the window from the view of anyone else on that floor. Mooney's discovery intensified the search for additional evidence on the sixth floor, and at one twenty-two p.m., approximately ten minutes after the cartridge cases were found, Deputy Sheriff Eugene Boone turned his flashlight in the direction of two rows of boxes in the northwest corner near the staircase, Stuffed between the two rows was a bolt-action rifle with a telescopic sight. This rifle was not touched until it could be photographed. When Lt. J. C. Day of the Police Identification Bureau decided that the wooden stock and the metal knob at the end of the bolt contained no prints, he held the rifle by the stock, while Captain Fritz ejected a live shell by operating the bolt. Lieutenant Day promptly noted that stamped on the rifle itself was the serial number C two seven six six, as well as the markings nineteen forty, made Italy, and caliber six point five. The rifle was about forty inches long, and when disassembled, could fit into a handmade paper sack, which after the assassination was found in the southeast corner of the building within a few feet of the cartridge cases. As Fritz and Day were completing their examination of this rifle on the sixth floor, Roy Truly, the building superintendent, approached with information which he felt should be brought to the attention of the police. Earlier, while the police were questioning the employees, Truly had observed that Lee Harvey Oswald, one of the fifteen men who worked in the warehouse, was missing. After Truly provided Oswald's name, address, and general description, Fritz left for police headquarters. He arrived at headquarters shortly after two p.m. and asked two detectives to pick up the employee who was missing from the Texas schoolbook depository. Standing nearby were the police officers who had just arrived with the man arrested in the Texas theater. When Fritz mentioned the name of the missing employee, he learned that that man was already in the interrogation room. The missing schoolbook depository employee and the suspect who had been apprehended in the Texas theater were one and the same, Lee Harvey Oswald. The suspect Fritz was about to question in connection with the assassination of the president and the murder of a policeman was born in New Orleans on October eighteenth, nineteen thirty-nine, two months after the death of his father. His mother, Marguerite Clavery Oswald had two older children one john pick was a half-brother to lee from an earlier marriage which had ended in divorce the other was robert oswald a full brother to lee and five years older when lee oswald was three mrs oswald placed him in an orphanage where his brother and half-brother were already living primarily because she had to work in january nineteen forty four when lee was four he was taken out of the orphanage, and shortly thereafter, his mother moved with him to Dallas, Texas, where the older boys joined them at the end of the school year. In May of 1945, Marguerite Oswald married her third husband, Edwin A. Eckdahl. While the two older boys attended a military boarding school, Lee lived at home and developed a warm attachment to Eckdahl occasionally accompanying his mother and stepfather on business trips around the country. Lee started school in Benbrook, Texas, but in the fall of 1946, after a separation from Eckdahl, Marguerite re-entered Lee in the first grade, in Covington, Louisiana. In January 1947, while Lee was still in the first grade, the family moved to Fort Worth, Texas, as the result of an attempted reconciliation between ekdahl and lee's mother a year and a half later before lee was nine his mother was divorced from her third husband as the result of a divorce action instituted by ekdahl lee's school record during the next five and a half years in fort worth was average although generally it grew poorer each year the comments of teachers and others who knew him at that time do not reveal any unusual personality traits or characteristics. End of section one. Recording by Maria Casper.